The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic Pet Duo. Greetings, pet lovers. Dr. Fleck and I are coming to you from the EpiPet Studios to bring you the best in pet talk radio. You know, this year has barely started and we're already surrounded and obsessed, Dr. Fleck, by political intrigue of who else but Congressman George Santos. For some media outlets, debunking Santos's lies has become a full-time job. You know, he lied about where he went to college, where he worked. He even tried to mislead voters about being Jewish. You know, he's Catholic. He lied about the sports he played. He said he was a volleyball champion. And we just found out last week that he had a GoFundMe page and GoFundMe kicked Santos (laughs) off of the platform for allegedly, get this, pocketing thousands of dollars from donation drive for a a veteran's ailing service dog. So the story is such that Richard Osthoff, he's a U.S. Navy veteran, says that Santos pretended to run a pet charity under the name of Anthony DeVolter. Now, maybe you saw the videos where he stands up in an auditorium, introduces himself as Anthony DeVolter, and mentions his pet charity. Well, it seems that Santos had used that name as an alias, and Osthoff lost his job and was living with his dog in a tent in an abandoned chicken coop when his service dog, Sapphire, developed a stomach tumor. Osthoff said he was referred to Anthony DeVolter by another vet that he was friendly with. According to Osterhoff, Anthony DeVolter started this GoFundMe page after raising $3,000 to help his dog, Sapphire. Osterhoff alleges that Santos later became uncooperative and didn't provide the money to treat the dog. He said he was never able to get his beloved dog proper treatment because he had relied on Santos and Sapphire died in 2017. Now, according to GoFundMe, GoFundMe has a zero tolerance policy for misuse on their platform and cooperates with law enforcement investigations of those accused of wrongdoing. Now, here's what Santos responded to the story. He tweeted that reports that he would let a dog die is shocking and insane. He furthermore noted that his work in animal advocacy was a labor of love and hard work. He mentioned that he received pictures of dogs that he'd helped rescue throughout the years, along with supportive messages from their owners. What are your thoughts, Dr. Fleck? Because you were in politics. I have so many thoughts about this. It's incredible. Number one is how did this person ever get elected to office. If I was a person that was a voting person in that district, I would be embarrassed having all this new information that's been revealed to us that should have been revealed during the election. The Republicans and the Democrats also have to take blame for all that that's happened. But for the specific issue about this pet that 
somebody had gone and got a special funding for, and that funding was allegedly misused. That pet obviously didn't get the attention that it was supposed to get. It's unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. The other problem is the veteran who needed this dog, especially when he lost his jobs and had to go live in a tent in an abandoned chicken coop, really relied on this dog and really relied on... For his well-being, for his existence. Right. And that somebody had promised that they would help him. He could have maybe found other sources of funding to get his dog treated while sticking around. And then eventually, after chasing him down for the money. Well, we'll have to wait and find out what happens next with George Santos. But we know he's no friend to pets. Yeah, let's bring our blood pressure down here a little bit. Okay, so now let's get on with the show. Dr. Fleck, give us a weekly rundown of what what we're going to talk about today. Okay, this week on the Pet Buzz, we will discuss parents teaching kids to play with pets, the world's oldest dog, pet homeopathy with Susie Serene of Zulmaka by Homeo Animal, cognitive dysfunction syndrome, eye infections, Taylor Swift's good deed for a Tennessee shelter, and... And January is National Blood Bank Donation Month. This monthly observance was meant to honor voluntary blood donors and to encourage more people to give blood at a time where more blood is needed. Actually, Dr. Fleck, do you know who kind of initiated this whole holiday? No. President Richard Nixon in the 1970s. Yeah. But while we don't ever think about it, animals need blood too. They absolutely do. And joining us today to talk about this important topic is certified veterinary technician, Rose Wall. She's the head of the blood donor program at the Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Rose, welcome to the Pet Buzz today. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I have to admit that Dr. Fleck is so excited by your joining us today because he is twice an MSU graduate college and vet school. Go green. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you the first question. Rose, is there a shortage of pet blood to help animals in need? There definitely is. People just don't think about animals needing blood. They think about their loved ones needing blood transfusions, but they never actually think about a need for pets as well. You know, and I'm just curious, and maybe you also can concur with Rose, Dr. Fleck, this time of the year with people getting sick and the winter time, wherever you are in the country, less and less people give blood around this time. Is that true? I don't know if people do or not, but I believe probably there's less availability um, for pets because if the owners are sick and not able to get out as much or the weather is inclement and they're not able to get out, I'm sure that probably affects um, pet donations as well. Yeah, they don't want to get out and go anyplace. They want to stay home in the warm, warm home. So let's talk about that a little bit. Animals, they do they need blood transfusions just like people? Correct. Um, we use blood transfusions for many different reasons. So if an animal has been hit by a car and has severe blood loss, or if they have had any kind of trauma, a lot of times during hunting season, we'll have hunting dogs get gunshot wounds or police dogs can get gunshot wounds at any point in time and need a blood transfusion. We also use it a lot during surgeries. So if um, during surgery, they have um, a fair amount of bleeding, which can be normal, no matter how good your surgeon is. um, Occasionally you have excess bleeding, they might need a blood transfusion. We use it a lot for bone marrow issues, or if a dog has like chronic kidney disease, it kind of prolongs um, their longevity and the good times that they will have with the owners. So there's many different reasons that we use it. Um, And I assume in um, human medicine, it's probably about for the same reasons. 
so I have a rare blood type, but I'm just curious, do animals or, you know, dogs and cats, do they have different blood types too? And then how does one know, how is that determined? So dogs and cats do have different blood types and they're different than people. Um, but they determine the blood type. There is a protein marker on a red blood cell called an antigen. And that is how um, they determine what their blood type is. So each blood type has a specific antigen or that protein marker on the red blood cell. So dogs have about 13 different blood types and they're identified by numbers. Um, cats have three different blood types and they're identified by letters. Wow. And I'm assuming depending on what other animals you have, it either increases with the number of blood types or decreases. That's pretty cool. Well, is there a rare blood type for a cat or a dog? A rare, I should say, rare number for a cat or a dog? Well, there's definitely rarer types. So cats, um, it's called type B, um, is the rarest blood type. And about only about 3% of cats have that blood type in the world. Um, in dogs, um, the universal blood type is probably considered the rarest. And that's only about 1 in 15 dogs has the universal blood type. So interesting. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Rose Wall from the Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine Blood Bank. Dr. Fleck, you have a question. Yeah, it's kind of related to just what we were talking about with blood types and species, etc. cetera. Uh, with people, you can't go different blood types in, in transfusion. Can you do that with the, with the canine? And what about different species as well? So with the canine, there is a universal blood type. So that blood type can be given to any dog. Um, with cats, there is no universal blood type. You have to give them type specific blood. So if they're type A, they have to get type A blood. If they're type B, they have to get B blood. Um, and rarely, there are a few cases reported where they've done cross species. Um, so they've given um, cats dog blood, but it's pretty rare and there isn't really good studies out on it yet. There needs to be more information before it's considered a safe, sound method of transfusion medicine. Evidence-based studies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is really interesting because, and I know that we have limited time, but most people with pets don't believe that we got blood banks in our hospitals until there's a problem. And generally speaking, we don't have blood banks in our hospitals. We have to go to the emergency clinics in order to have that achieved. So that is available for people. And, it, and it's not necessarily a common issue where transfusions are given in the past. But as we move forward, we're beginning to see it used more and more. And Charlotte, you're being concerned about finances. That's why one of the reasons why it becomes more and more expensive for the care of pets with more serious medical issues. Well, I think that's a great point to make since we see developments happening in not only human, but veterinary care that are very similar to human care. But I think how you started your last statement was, I think most people, it's not a question of they don't believe, no. I think they just don't even know this is an issue within the veterinary right, care right. Uh, community blood bank donations. Well, we have to take a commercial break and we'll be back with Rose Wall, head of the blood donor program at Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine Blood Bank. Also up next is Celebrity Pet Buzz and Flex Facts, so stay tuned. <laughs> 
You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and our buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Buzz. The show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Well, we're back with certified veterinary technician Rose Wall, who is head of the blood donor program at Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine Blood Bank. Rose, what pets can donate and what are the general requirements for blood donations, for pet blood donations? So we're looking for healthy pets first and foremost. Um, but dogs, they have to be over 50 pounds and cats have to be over 10 pounds. And that's just because of the amount of blood that we take from them. We don't want a really little dog and we would, you know, draw too much blood from them and make them not feel well. Um, they have to be up to date on vaccines, um, current on heartworm preventative, so that we make sure that they're not going to give anything infectious to other animals. Cats have to be strictly indoors. Um, and kind of have limited exposure to other cats so that they're not getting infected with like a upper respiratory infection from another cat. Um, and they have to be fairly easy to work with. Um, we don't want a dog that we have is aggressive or something like that. So they have to be fairly easy to work with and easy to handle, able to tolerate a little bit of light restraint. So with people, I think we take what, a, a liter of blood? Is that what they do from us? It's usually about 500 milliliters. So about a pint. Okay, about a pint. How much do we take from a pet? Um, about the same. We usually take anywhere from about, I know, right? <laughs> we take anywhere from about 350 to 450 milliliters, which is about a pint. And then from cats, we take about 50 mils to 60 mils of blood from them. So I guess the best way to think about this is that's like two cups of blood. It's like right. a yeah, cup. Exactly. Okay, so you had a next question is we need to move on. Okay, so we get, we get candy or something after we give blood. Is there any aftercare for pets? Well, it's requirements. I oh, mean, requirements. Okay. What about the requirements? <laughs> so we do um, and give them lots of snacks um, and lots of goodies that they're excited about. Um, the aftercare that I tell the owners is that just um, keep them somewhat quiet the next day. Um, normal food and activity is okay, but nothing excessive or strenuous activity. And lots of lots of water because they're going to want to replenish that volume that we took from them. So when I was in college, I used to give blood and made some money. Do they get paid for doing this too for the pets? The pets actually don't get paid other than with snacks and scratches and, okay. um, you know, lots of fun games. But the owners, um, they get the choice of either a free bag of dog food or they can get a credit to the hospital that they can use on any of their pets' okay. um, bills. So that's kind of helpful. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have my last question is... Um, do blood banks hold blood drives? And how would a listener learn more about blood bank drives? I mean, our show airs internationally. So I think this is a topic that people find interesting. And while Rose yeah. is specific to MSU, I'm sure other teaching hospitals and universities do it similar. Well, they would try to. Right, well, they would try to. But is there a website one can go to to learn more just about blood banks in general? Yeah, you could um, you can Google just blood animal blood banking and pretty much all of them in the country will come up. Um, there's kind of two different ways of doing it. They can have blood drives. We don't do that. We tend to try to keep an animal for a lifetime. So um, as a donor, 
So what we do is we screen them and then they donate every six to eight weeks. And so then we establish kind of a rapport with them and they learn us and they learn the routine. They generally will come back frequently to us, whereas a blood drive, it's some, often it's just a one-time thing. So there's two different ways. Usually commercial blood banks will do the blood drives where institutions and veterinary hospitals tend to do the blood banking as we do it every six to eight weeks. Yeah. Just like when I was in college, six to eight weeks, make some money for alcohol. That seems like a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But go ahead. Rose, thank you so much for joining us today. This is really interesting information and something our listeners need to know about. Have you got a website or so for us to have them contact? Absolutely. It's www.cvm.msu.edu. And you can just search blood donor and we will come up and we are always looking for blood donors. Well, just to remind you that was certified veterinary technician Rose Wall, head of the blood donor program at Michigan State University College of Veterinary Medicine Blood Bank, discussing blood donation for animals and pets. Now, next up, Celebrity Pet Buzz. You gotta love a cat lady, especially if she's Taylor Swift. Last week, Williamson County Animal Center in Franklin, Tennessee announced that the shelter recently received a very generous donation from the ever so popular singer-songwriter Taylor Swift. As a way to say thank you for Taylor's very generous support, the Williamson County Animal Center shared on Facebook that the organization named their newest adoptable puppies after her song. So you got Carolina, Bejeweled, Midnight Rain, and Willow. The post also included photos of the four black and white three-month-old female canines. So all I have to do is say thank you, Taylor, for your supportive animals. We love you because you're an inspiration to help others, whether humans or animals. Now it's time for the facts. Welcome to Just the Facts. Just the Facts. Fact or fiction? Just the Facts, ma'am. You want answers. I want the truth. That's right. Flex Facts. Dr. Fleck, what's the topic for today? Eyes. Eye infections. Inflammations of the eye. These are main causes of eye infections in dogs. If your dog is exhibiting discomfort, redness, or even sensitivity to the light, it's really a good idea to consult with your veterinarian. Left untreated, eye infections can spread or lead to even vision loss. Okay, so what are the basic types of infections? Well, conjunctivitis is an inflammation of the thin mucous membrane covering the eyeball or the lining of the inner surface of the eyelid. Uveitis, which is inflammation in the interior portion of the eyeball. Abnormalities of the eyelids, and don't forget the tear glands. Okay, so what are the causes of eye infections? Similarly, in humans, there are many causes for dog eye infections. These can include viruses such as distemper, herpes, hepatitis, canine influenza, or the flu, bacteria such as canine brucellosis, leptospirosis, and such tick-borne diseases as canine ehrlichiosis and Lyme disease, funguses, irritants, which is the most common, like smoke, and foreign matter like dirt, grass seed, or even the dog's own hair. Trauma, parasites, scratches or cuts on the cornea. So what are the symptoms of dog eye infections? Well, visibly they look like redness, swelling, watery or thick smelly discharge, squinting, blinking, holding the eye closed, light sensitivity, 
and pawing at the eye. So how do veterinarians diagnose a dog's eye infection? Well, eye exams for dogs are very similar to those for humans. Vets will perform the visual examination with a focal light source of the eyelid and the front half of the eye. Schirmer tear test to measure to see if you're getting enough secretion of tears. Intraocular pressure to check for glaucoma. And dilatation with special eye drops to allow the vet to examine the back of the eye or the retina with optic nerve retina and layers of the tissue in the canine eye that reflects light and improves night vision. The corneal staining with a fluorescent dye will reveal ulcers or penetrating wounds into the surface of the cornea and sometimes even bacterial cultures and sometimes even allergy testing. So then how is a treatment plan created? Well, that's, that's really complicated. Your vet will pinpoint the cause of your dog's eye discomfort, create a treatment plan. Sometimes this will involve treating an underlying condition and almost well it does, such as an allergy, autoimmune diseases, or tumors. Issues related to the eyes alone may require both systemic, involving the whole body, and topical medications. In many cases, eye drops or eye ointments are required. I just want to remind you, though, not to use over-the-counter eye drops designated for humans, such as Visine. Anything else? That's all the Flex Facts for the week. Great reporting, Dr. Fleck. I learned a lot more about eyes because it's not something that you hear about all the time. Eye problems for pets. Yeah, but I see 5% of my medical cases are eye issues. And guess which kind of breeds have the most eye issues? Brachyphysolic dogs, snub-nosed dogs. Yep, you got it. Well, let's move on. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio, where we focus on enhancing the bond between pets and their people. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Let's kick off this segment with the I Likey of the Week. That's the way it has to be, because that's the way I like it. It's genius. It's to die for. In 2003, Oprah Winfrey named the Barefoot Dreams Row one of her favorite things. And since that time, I love their super soft goods and their muted colors. From socks and robes, sweaters and loungewears, you can only imagine how excited I was to find that the company makes dog beds and other pet apparel. And it was advertised on Nordstrom's department store website. The best part, the Barefoot Dreams pet stuff is on sale. Half price for the dog beds. A large dog bed is now $73.99, down from $148.99. So you know I had to buy a few things for my doggos, Morrow, Wally, Hammy, and Churchill. If you wish your pooch's pleasant dreams, they're already barefoot, check out Nordstrom's pet sale at nordstrom.com. Just put in sale and pets and 
the list of products will come down, including the Barefoot Dreams products, but you can always find Barefoot Dreams dog products on eBay, Amazon, Poshmark, and of course, barefootdreams.com. We got mail. You got mail. So, Dr. Fleck, Sally has a question for you. She wrote that her older dog seems to have dementia, and she wants to know if that's possible. According to PetMD, 50% of dogs over the age of 11 do show signs of cognitive decline, which some might refer to as dementia. So the answer to your question is yes, it is possible for an older dog to suffer from cognitive decline dementia. If your dog has some of these symptoms, you may want to mention it to the vet during its regular checkup so he can test for cognitive dysfunction syndrome or CDS. Is your pet lethargic, not interested in usual activities, change in sleeping patterns, seems to be confused. CDS is not curable, but the symptoms can be treated. Sometimes our dogs just get old kind of like us and when that happens it seems their old bodies cannot behave like when they were young there are some things you can do however to help your pet in this situation when a diagnosis is given you as the owner can choose to either purchase medication for your pet to help slow the decline or go with other therapeutic options both options especially if used together can be of great help to your pet. So Sally, thanks for writing this and keep us posted about your dog's mental health. I think that was a great question and I'll keep a lot of people thinking as their dog ages. So realistic because that's what exists today. Not only with their pet life, but with your human life as their parents and grandparents age. And they're so similar with each other. Right. And now more people are doing what they did in years of yesteryear, ended up living with an older family member mm -hmm. or bringing a parent into the home or vice versa, moving home to be with their parents as they age. If that's the best situation. If that's the best situation. Seems that our next guest is on the phone. Well, that's great. Okay, well, according to the World Health Organization, homeopathic medicine is the second most widely used system of medicine in the world, and it is the fastest growing, believe it or not. I know you're probably surprised by that. I am. Because you are a scientist. It is yep. not only used for people, but it's also used for their pets, too. Homeopathic medicine is included in my approach, too. And joining us today to talk about pet homeopathic medicine is Susie Serene from Zulmaka by Homeo Animal. Greetings and welcome to the Pet Buzz. That was a mouthful for me. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start out by asking you, what is pet homeopathy? So pet homeopathy, it's a type of alternative medicine. Uh, it's been around for hundreds of years. It's and like you said, it's actually recognized by the World Health Organization as the second most widely used system of medicine in the world, which is quite surprising. Uh, it's a gentle yet very effective and powerful uh, medicine, and it's effective in stimulating a pet's own uh, natural healing responses. So the benefits, there are several of them. Uh, I would say very safe, non-toxic, all natural. 
And what I really love is that it aims to uh, treat the whole animal. So it's not, it doesn't just help ease illness, but it promotes the pet's overall immune system health. Uh, it's side effect free and it's super easy to administer. I know with Susie, Susie has her own product line. And one of the things that she talks about in many of her videos is the fact that you don't have to give pets medication. You could spray the topicals and the things that she creates on the food or spray into the mouth to make it a lot easier to give. Is that correct? Uh, we usually definitely recommend to uh, spray it. Usually instead of the food, water is easier. It's a better vehicle for homeopathic remedies. But yes, the mouth also very, uh, very easy to, to give that way. And, and homeopathy includes both products and procedures, correct? Uh, yes. It's not just the products, it's also the methods that are used. Exactly. So, so let's talk a little bit about the products. What are pet or animal homeopathic remedies made from? That's an excellent question. So homeopathic medicines are made from three major sources. Uh, there's plants, there's animals, and there's minerals. So for the plants, uh, this source is, I would say, the most popular as most of the homeopathic medicines, I would say about 75% are obtained from plants. And for the other sources, for minerals, uh, we can source remedies from gold, silver, iron, and even from minerals such as your table salt, <laughs> for example. Um, and for animal source remedies, the prep preparation method is the same as that of uh, plants and minerals. So a well-known remedy that comes from the source is sepia, which is uh, derived from the ink sac of the common cuttlefish. You know, Charlotte, we've got mineral springs just south of us here, too. That's part of homeopathy. In Venice, mm -hmm. a youthful spring. I've never jumped in it. I probably well, maybe should. you should. I know. Okay, you had another question, Dr. Fleck. Um, why do you think the practice of pet homeopathy is growing so much? The first and foremost thing that comes to mind is right now, as of 2023, uh, is COVID. COVID stimulated pet adoption even more. Um, I read that 23 million American households required acquired a pet during COVID, which is crazy. That's almost one in five households uh, in America. So, and only a few days ago, there is a, a report that came out from the um, expert market research. And they just released uh, a report on pet supplement market growth. And they said that organic pet supplements are gaining popularity among pet, pet owners because people are just seeing several benefits, such as assisting in uh, speedier healing, uh, having a high nutritional profile and having no negative effects. And homeopathy definitely falls under that category. You know, and I can reinforce that with just the clients that I see on a daily basis. Many of them have attempted to use some homeopathic approaches or continue to use homeopathic approaches to try for the well-being of their pet, too. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking to homeopath Susie Serene from Zulmaka by Homeo Animal. Susie, you know, we've asked a number of listeners to send us some questions for you, and we hope that you can answer a few. So let's sure. start with Peter, who is a dog and cat owner from Northern California. And he wrote, Susie, what homeopathic product should I keep in my first aid kit? I thought this was a fantastic question because a lot of times we don't think of traditional medication in those first aid kits. And I know from my experience that it's, it's great to use some of those products. So can you share what you think Peter should put in his first aid kit? 
Yeah, I could give a lot, but let me give you my top three. So Arnica is one of the most widely known, valued, and useful of all homeopathic remedies. Uh, it's definitely your top one remedy uh, to have in your first aid kit. Uh, it's used for bumps, bruises, injuries. Uh, it also encourages healing and reduces pain and the effects of shock. Uh, second one would be Apis, uh, which is used a lot for hives and swelling. And basically, any it's good for any issues that have the same effects of a uh, bee sting. So swelling, puffing up, edema, uh, stinging pain, soreness, etc. And a third one would be Nux Vomica. Uh, so when thinking of this remedy, think uh, di digestive problems. I think it's one of the most used homeopathic remedies for digestive upset. So something like vomiting, constipation, diarrhea would be uh, very useful for that to, to have at home. Kind of like pumpkin has mm -hmm. multiple mm -hmm. uses, right? Mm -hmm. We need to take a commercial break and come back with homeopath Susie Serene from Zomalka by Homeo Animal. And also up next, Global Pet News and Tell Me Something Good. Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? EpiPet to the rescue. Developed by a veterinarian, EpiPet is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPet, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, epi-pet.com. EpiPet is another proud partner of the Pet Buzz. I'm Mark Cushing, the CEO of the Animal Policy Group, and you're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Here at the Pet Buzz, we are urban, suburban, and, and country. country. We're back with homeopath Susie Serene from Zulmaka by Homeo Animal. Melanie recently moved from Virginia to Chicago for a new job and has been extremely difficult and stressful for her dog, George Washington, as he has a whole new routine and environment, as well as a new dog walker, groomer, and dog trainer. She was interested in calming and stress support for her pooch. What do you recommend and why? I totally get it. Uh, moving can be very stressful time uh, for a pet. Uh, there are very uh, there are a lot of remedies that can uh, be given to help with a, a move like that. So in homeopathy, uh, one remedy that comes to my mind is uh, Ignatia. Uh, it has tra traditionally traditionally uh, been used for symptoms of grief and homesickness. So that would be very good. Um, Nature Mure. Um, will be excellent for especially for a depressed and withdrawn pet after moving and maybe a last one arsenicum album very good if your pet is anxious and has trouble sleeping maybe from his uh, change routine i thought this was a fascinating question because obviously george washington living in virginia i guess was living in a more calming or serene atmosphere more of a suburban now he's living in chicago in the city with all the noises and a whole bunch of new dogs and new people so i thought this was the perfect question for susie and also taking into consideration 75 percent of dogs suffer from anxiety so this is a common everyday problem. But then again, and, and you can confirm this for me, Susie, when working with animals, every animal is different, of course, right? It's like, of course. So depending on what 
the age of the dog as well as the surrounding circumstances is how you treat, correct? Uh, yes, we'll individualize every treatment as much as possible. We really love to take into account all the small details because there are just so many remedies you can use in homeopathy. And those remedies can really be pinpointed to the uh, individualized uh, pet needs. So that's the wonderful things about homeopathy, which really gives good results. Okay. So we have another question for Susie. So um, everyone, including pet owners, are interested in gut health these days. It's the new buzz, right? It's the it. So what do we need to keep our gut health, our pet's gut health, and what homeopathic um, remedies do you recommend? And I know that would vary, but um, let's think just in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, gut health is in pets is definitely essential <laughs> for wellness. Uh, it just um, it, the digestive system maintains uh, important body functions, uh, the immune system, and poor gut health also has been linked to a lot of diseases like uh, allergies and cancer. So it's important to make sure the the gut stay, stays uh, healthy. Um, it's also important to know that uh, homeopathy is not to be given for prevention, only for treatment. So if you're looking to maintain good health, I would recommend probably using something like probiotics or other supplements. Um, but if you're looking to treat a specific gut problem in your pet, then yes, homeopathy will be excellent. Uh, for example, if your pet has loose stools, then arsenicum album will be great. Uh, it's one of the first remedies for the gastrointestinal tract. And like I said before, it's important to uh, we try to pinpoint and make sure we personalize the the recommendations. So it really varies <laughs> the remedies we can give for, for gut health in pests. You know, Susie, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about homeopathic care for for pets. It is such an important and, and a new driving force in the care of pets. So before you depart, can you give us a website? Sure. Uh, Zumalka.com. So Z-U-M-A-L. And it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's great having Susie. Wasn't yeah, it, was. it? it was really in, informative. I actually like when the listeners write in and ask questions because then you see the practice and then you see the product. Then you see Susie in action. Yep. Well, that was homeopath Susie Seren from Zalmalka by Homeo Animal discussing the growing practice and benefits of homeopathic medicine and how it's helping our pets. And I'm not surprised, you know, when you go to the, the pet shows, you see, and especially with Bill Bocow, the president of the National Animal Supplement Council, you see what areas of the pet industry are really growing like hotcakes. And this is one of them. Well, it's time now for International Pet Buzz. And now, Pet Buzz news from around the globe. Well, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, a 23-year-old chihuahua named Spike is officially the world's oldest living dog. Spike, who was born in November of 1999, assumed the record as of December 7th when he was, get this, 23 years of age and seven days old. The small dog lives with his owner, Rita Kimball, and her family on a farm in Camden, Ohio. Kimball told the Guinness Book of World Records that she took Spike in nearly 14 years ago when she found him abandoned in a grocery store parking lot. Kimball said of her first encounter in August of 2009 that Spike jumped right in her car and sat on the seat as if he knew 
They were going places. Despite his advanced age these days, Spike reportedly leads an active life visiting the other animals on his family's farm daily, including barn cats, cows, and horses. He also loves to ride tractors and supervise when Kimball chops wood. How about that? At 23, Spike doesn't hear or see as well as he used to, but neither have affected his outsized or his big personality, according to Kimball, who said her beloved dog has never met a stranger and is best friends with everyone he meets and everyone he meets. Spike, we want to wish you a happy birthday and we hope you live another 23 years before Spike took the title of the world's oldest living dog. He was preceded by Gina Wolf a chihuahua mix who was 22 years of age and 52 days old when he assumed the record. What great news, right? It is great news. It's inspiring news. I have to admit, I have, I have pets, canines that are 20 years old in the practice. Well, they're pretty close they're to Spike. They're close to it. Yep. Very close to Spike. Mm -hmm. I just like to hear something something good like that, you know? Mm -hmm. It's very inspirational to see pets living their living a long, long life. With quality. Hey, I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed, and this is the Pet Buzz Now. Is your dog a chow hound? Does your pooch gobble up the food the moment it touches the floor? Best to know that eating too fast could lead to medical pet problems as well as expensive vet bills. While there's no definitive answer as to why some dogs eat like competitive eating contenders, perhaps a dog who came from a large litter may have had competition for nourishment, or dogs in hoarding situations, dogs fed poorly or irregularly, may have developed speed eating behavior. Some dogs also exhibit fast eating when they're around other dogs. But dogs eating too quickly can suffer from digestive issues, such as choking, gagging, burping, vomiting, regurgitation, or even bloat. While more common in large breed or deep-chested dogs, any breed can develop bloat. And if not treated quickly, it can be fatal. So how do you slow down your speed eater? Well, there are slow feeder bowls designed to slow down the crazy eater. There are also inserts that can be placed inside an existing food bowl to contribute to your pet's healthier eating habits. And while most of these products work best for kibble, some are even suited for canned or raw diet eaters. A do-it-yourself suggestion is to simply divide up kibble into a muffin tin and use that as a dog bowl. Food puzzles make dogs and cats work for their food with their noses and paws. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed, and that's today's Pet Buzz Now. Get ready for the good stuff and tell me something good. News of the day got you down? No worries. Petrondologist Charlotte Reed is here with Tell Me Something Good. This is a necessity like air and oxygen. Tell me something good. Well, you know, a Reddit user, Curbsy, posted a video of her eight-month-year-old baby lying on a carpeted floor while playing with two cats. The little girl is having a good old time laughing loudly. She waves the wand, and the cat number one plays with the wiggling rope prey. After she rolls on her back, cat number two has a chance to play, too. While it's charming to watch the baby having such a good time, I most appreciated the comments of her mother, which were highlighted in a Newsweek article. The mother told the reporter from the media outlet that their daughter started getting interested 
interested in the cats when she was about five months old. Her parents taught her how to play with the toy wand by holding it at the same time with her. She always found it really funny for some reason. According to the little girl's mother, at first the cats were a little apprehensive about being around their eight-month-year-old daughter as she likes to grab onto their fur at close range. But since learning how to play from a distance, the baby and the cats bonded, especially now that she's eight months old and is beginning to understand what she's doing. Her mother said she is learning to play with them on her own and they have slowly started to warm up to her even when she doesn't have the robe toy. Well, while the baby and the two cats in the Reddit video appear to be getting along well, it's important to take precautions when allowing kids to interact with cats and other pets, especially at an early age. Children must be taught how to interact with and handle their family pets, including how to approach, pet, and or lift small pets. Whenever possible, play sessions and training should always include child supervision, the child supervision of the parent. I applaud the parents of this little girl since they taught her how to play with the cats and are supervising the interaction, even though they're shooting the video. This is a lesson to pet lovers everywhere, and that's something good. Well, it's a wrap, Dr. Flack. But before we go, we want to give you a preview of next week's show. Next week, we're talking about pet travel and vegan diets for pets. Dr. Flack, would you be so kind as to thank our guest? Yeah, special thanks to our interesting guests, Rose Wall and Susie Serene. And of course, we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton, Florida, and EpiPet, making better skin-coated ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. If you have a question, write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. We'll try to talk about it next week on the show. And if you've missed any portion of this show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channel and listen to the link podcast on Monday morning. But most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. www.thepetbuzz.com Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.